welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. As many of you already know, Judge Hannon in the Southern District of Texas issued an order this week apparently finding DACA unlawful nine years after its enactment and enjoining the Biden administration from granting new applications but not divesting the nearly 1 million current DACA recipients of their DACA status. We'll see what happens with all that. As to the cases this week, there are lots of them, and they're all over the place. Dare I say the circuits have gone hog wild? Also, lots of parentheticals using the phrase, quote, cleaned up, end quote, to describe prior circuit decisions. I know that cleaned up is all the rage right now with law clerks, but I will not join that party. It's weird. I'm sorry. Consider me an elder millennial. What do you got for us, Mr. Garland? First is matter of Cruz Valdez, published by the Attorney General. The Attorney General is at it again, proving that elections matter. As Attorney General Garland did a few weeks ago with the matters of A.B. and matter of L.E.A. II, the Attorney General has vacated matter of Castro-Tum in its entirety, in a four-page decision. Administrative closure is back, people. I've wasted a lot of breath. And really, it never left, or only did temporarily, in the three or four circuits that refused to defer to Attorney General Sessions. But all of that is no more. The, quote, docket management tool, end quote, of administrative closure is back, expressly making matter of WYU and matter of Avetesian good law again. Based on the Attorney General's reasoning, it appears that administrative closure will be particularly warranted for non-citizens to apply for I-601A waivers. But don't sleep on asserting it to assist the immigration courts in dealing with the over 1 million case backlog currently pending in immigration court. 
The Attorney General also explained how, in December 2020, the lame duck Trump administration pushed through a regulation that would have essentially codified matter of Castro-Tum into law, but that a team of dedicated lawyers and nonprofit entities obtained a preliminary injunction of that rule in the Northern District of California, and that now the Department of Justice is in the process of reconsidering the regulation. Like in the ABs and LEA II, notice and comment rulemaking is expected to occur soon that presumably, in this case, will codify administrative closure into law. What a wild four years it has been. Two more things. In a footnote, the Attorney General quoted a matter of WYU footnote, which had held that, quote, the primary consideration for an immigration judge in determining whether to administratively close a case over a party's objection is whether the party opposing administrative closure has provided a persuasive reason for the case to proceed and be resolved on the merits, end quote. While that seems to potentially place a significant amount of power in DHS's hands, don't sleep on the phrase persuasive reason. That means something, and we must remember to hold DHS to its burden if it intends to oppose administrative closure. Also, in the last sentence of the decision, Attorney General Garland instructs the immigration courts to apply matter of WYU and matter of Habitation, thereby authorizing administrative closure, quote, except when a court of appeals has held otherwise, end quote. Now, as I understand it, the only court where that's even potentially an issue is in the Sixth Circuit. And if you're in the 6th, check out Hernandez Serrano v. Barr, discussed on episode 31 of the podcast, and compare it to Garcia de Leon v. Garland, discussed on episode 58 of the podcast, and see if there's some wiggle room. I bet there is. And that is matter of Cruz Valdez. Next is Valorezo Torado v. Attorney General of the U.S., published by the Third Circuit on July 15, 2021. This case is about reasonable fear interviews. Mr. Valorezo Torado is from Ecuador. He previously entered the U.S. and was physically removed to Ecuador. He re-entered the U.S. without authorization in 2017, was detained at some point, and in January 2020, DHS reinstated the prior order of removal against Mr. Valorezo Torado. After reinstatement, however, he claimed to have a fear of persecution and torture in Ecuador, and so was provided a reasonable fear interview, as the law mandates when DHS reinstates a final order of removal under such circumstances. During the reasonable fear interview, and without an attorney, Mr. Valarezo Torado testified that following his removal in 2015, he had a dispute over money with his neighbor in Ecuador, who it turned out was a known drug trafficker, and the police refused to intervene. The neighbor threatened Mr. Valarezo Torado and his family, and so they fled to the U.S. The DHS asylum officer conducting the interview, note, not a judge, held that Mr. Valorezo Torado didn't have a reasonable fear because the experience and the fear that he credibly described didn't quite rise to the level of past persecution or torture, and he hadn't shown that the police would harm him or acquiesce to the harm. Mr. Valorezo Torado appealed that no reasonable fear finding to an immigration judge, as the law allows, and the IJ upheld the asylum officer although for a slightly different reason. 
The IJ held that it didn't seem like Mr. Valorezo Torado feared harm on account of a protected ground, or by the Ecuadorian government. Mr. Valorezo Torado then timely petitioned for review that IJ's no reasonable fear finding directly to the Third Circuit and bypassed the BIA, as he can do under the case law that's percolated throughout the circuits throughout the years. And in this decision, the Third Circuit sent it back, finding that the IJ had not explained her rationale sufficiently for the Third Circuit to adequately review. Quote, The entirety of the IJ's written decision rejecting his claim states, and now quoting the IJ decision, are not targeted on account of protected ground. Government is willing to assist. End quote. Now I'm not going to lie. To me, some of this problem is structural, because the IJ is also up against tight regulatory deadlines when it comes to reasonable fear hearings, and reasonable fear review was never intended, as I understand it, to be the same as an entire withholding-only proceeding. But on the other hand, if federal circuit courts are now going to review an IJ's reasonable fear review decisions, as they clearly are, perhaps that entire regulatory framework needs to change. Hire more IJs, perhaps? Quote, We will not permit crowded dockets or a backlog of cases to excuse an IJ or the BIA from providing a meaningful explanation of why someone has been denied relief under the asylum laws or the CAT. End quote. Not only that, but in this decision, the Third Circuit then extended the favorable non-citizen-friendly corroboration case law into the reasonable fear review proceedings. If on remand, the IJ intends to affirm the asylum officer by holding that Mr. Valorezo Torado did not provide sufficient corroborating evidence, then the IJ must, quote, inform Valorezo Torado of the evidence that requires corroboration and must give Valorezo Torado an opportunity to furnish such information or provide an explanation for its absence, end quote. The court did hold, however, that the IJ did not deny Mr. Valorezo Torado's constitutional rights by refusing to continue proceedings so he could obtain counsel as the reasonable fear regulations are silent as to whether non-citizens have a right to counsel in the credible or reasonable fear review before an immigration judge. And Mr. Valareza Torado was properly advised of his rights both before the asylum officer and the IJ. At the end of the day, loyal IJ listeners, the Third Circuit realized and quote, readily acknowledged that an IJ's position is an impossibly demanding and challenging one, end quote where the, quote, average immigration judge handled over 1,500 cases in a year, end quote, with a pending caseload of 2,000. Wow. But a, quote, two-sentence recitation on a bullet point form, end quote, even in reasonable fear, and presumably then credible fear review as well, quote, will rarely, if ever, provide sufficient reasoning for a decision, end quote. So the Third Circuit sent it back. Congratulations, Robert D. Helfand of the Office of the Connecticut State Comptroller, don't really get that one, and Charles W. Stodder of Carlton Fields for Petitioner. Just one more reminder. As strange as it sounds, and while it may be different in certain circuits, it is generally the case that while the circuits can review no reasonable fear findings like what happened here, Circuits lack jurisdiction to review a no credible fear finding following a credible fear interview. 
A credible fear interview has a lower burden of proof and occurs when non-citizens without reinstated final orders of removal are caught at the border or near it and express a fear of persecution or torture. If those non-citizens pass their interview, they can apply for asylum. Reasonable fear interview recipients, such as Mr. Valoreza Torado, never can, and at best, only get withholding-only proceedings before an IJ. Circuits can review no reasonable fear findings generally, but cannot review no credible fear findings. And again, while I can't speak for all the circuits, the general rationale is that with a reasonable fear interview, there exists a final order of removal. There necessarily exists a final order of removal. Remember, it's being reinstated. And a final order of removal is kind of the jurisdictional foot in the door for circuit review. Counterintuitive, and really it makes no sense from a logical standpoint, or put another way, it's immigration law. And that is Valoreza Torado, the Attorney General of the United States. Moving on, we have B.R. v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on July 12, 2021. This case is about a lot of things, but it's mainly about service of NTAs and the exclusionary rule. And it's a long one. Mr. B.R. has lived in California since he was a child. But he got in a lot of trouble as a child, with various arrest records from the state of California, which indicate that he was born in Mexico. At 16, he was charged with possession of a concealed firearm, and DHS initiated removal proceedings by serving him with a notice to appear, charging him as being present in the U.S. without inspection and admission. DHS served Mr. B.R. with the NTA while he was in detention at 16 years old. He was released to his mother's custody a few months later. Mr. B.R., eventually, and represented by an attorney, moved to terminate his proceedings before the immigration judge, alleging that DHS violated the Ninth Circuit's 2004 decision in Flores Chavez v. Ashcroft, and therefore, that Mr. B.R.'s due process rights were violated when DHS served him with an NTA as a minor, but didn't serve his mother or guardian with the NTA. The IJ held that that might be the case but DHS had reserved Mr. B.R. with a new NTA once he became an adult. So no harm, no foul. Mr. B.R. then denied all the charges in the NTA, including alienage, because his attorney is a pain in the butt and is good. This meant that DHS had to prove that Mr. B.R. was born in Mexico. And if it did, at which point, generally Mr. B.R. would then have the burden to prove that he's nevertheless a citizen of the United States. To meet its burden, DHS submitted a Form I-213 in Immigration Court, which is essentially an immigration police report created by DHS, which said that Mr. B.R. was born in Mexico. Mr. B.R.'s attorney, again, pain of the butt, moved to suppress the I-213, arguing that the only thing DHS had relied upon in the document was Mr. B.R.'s juvenile record in California and that by doing so, DHS had violated Mr. B.R.'s Fourth and Fifth Amendment rights, and the governing regulations. But in response, DHS submitted a copy of Mr. B.R.'s Mexican birth certificate and a pre-sentence investigation report prepared when Mr. B.R. was an adult, following another crime that he had committed. 
The IJ denied the motion to terminate without holding a hearing, and Mr. BR applied for Convention Against Torture deferral due to his criminal history, which the IJ and then the BIA also denied. And so we arrive at the circuit. Let's take the issues in turn, shall we? The Ninth Circuit first held that Mr. BR's simply stating, presumably by affidavit, that he doesn't recall having received the NTA personally isn't sufficient to rebut the presumption that he indeed received the NTA when he was a child, particularly as the NTA has his signature on it. As to the fact that he was initially served as a minor, the Ninth Circuit held that the IJ properly permitted DHS to reserve the NTA upon Mr. BR once he became an adult in removal proceedings. True, in Flores Chavez, the Ninth Circuit held that for all detained minors under 17 years old, the regulations require that DHS serve a copy of the NTA upon those children's custodians upon their release from detention. But according to the panel, Flores Chavez never reached the issue here. Can DHS cure its regulatory violation by later serving an NTA upon the same non-citizen once the non-citizen becomes an adult? According to the panel, DHS can. And it doesn't matter whether the non-citizen's guardian was served or not when the non-citizen was a minor. DHS can reserve the child after he or she grows up, absent a showing of prejudice, so long as, and here's the kicker, DHS reserves, quote, before substantive removal proceedings begin, end quote. Okay, one issue down. Now on to the I-213 and motion to suppress evidence of alienage. The court agreed with Mr. B.R. on this one. True, identity, that is, that Mr. B.R. is Mr. B.R., is never suppressible. But Mr. B.R. presented argument to indicate that those other pieces of evidence, the Mexican birth certificate and the pre-sentence report obtained as an adult, were inextricably linked to his juvenile record. For example, DHS stated that it got its birth certificate from publicly available Mexican government sources but Mr. B.R. argued that DHS could only have done so by using information, such as Mr. B.R.'s parents' names and his birth date, that were only available through his juvenile record. As to the pre-sentence report, that has its own problems, including that it was under seal by a federal judge and yet DHS still somehow got it. Why does all this matter? because a plurality of the Supreme Court said at the end of INS v. Lopez in 1984 that an egregious constitutional violation may lead to suppression of evidence, even evidence of alienage, in immigration proceedings. And Ninth Circuit case law additionally allows for termination of proceedings where DHS prejudicially violates a regulation designed to benefit non-citizens. Importantly in this case, the IJ assumed that the evidence of alienage connected to the juvenile records would mandate suppression, but then found the new evidence, the Mexican birth certificate and that pre-sentence report, sufficiently separate from the juvenile records, and so not warranting suppression and termination of proceedings. But according to the Ninth Circuit here, Mr. B.R. sufficiently made a prima facie showing that suppression would be warranted i.e. that the alienage evidence was fruit of the poisonous tree. Meaning under matter of Varsanus and Ninth Circuit case law, the burden then shifts to DHS, usually at a hearing, to prove why that evidence should nonetheless be admitted. This the IJ failed to provide, and so the matter was sent back. Although that could and maybe should end the case, the Ninth Circuit went on to uphold the denial of cat protection. 
This is a long one, so I'm not going to get into it much, but suffice to say, Mr. BR's fears that the Mexican government would torture him were speculative, and he didn't provide enough evidence to show, even if cartels in Mexico do want him, that the Mexican government or its officials would acquiesce. So congrats in part to counsel on hard-fought issues and a hard-fought case. I know it's long, but indulge me for one more minute. Want to return to that service of the NTA thing? DHS can reserve an adult non-citizen who was placed in proceedings as a child and insufficiently served, quote, before substantive removal proceedings begin, end quote. What does that mean? Don't removal proceedings become substantive once alienage is established, right at the very beginning? So if a child non-citizen concedes alienage, even with an attorney, before his parents are served with an NTA or before growing up and getting reserved, it appears that this decision mandates termination of proceedings with prejudice, because that genie can't really be put back into the bottle. Something to think about and to argue, should those unique circumstances arise. And that is B.R. B. Garland. Sticking with the ninth, we have Lalayan v. Garland, published on July 13th, 2021. This is another long one from the Ninth Circuit this week, part of a long episode in general. This decision is largely about credibility. Mr. Lalayan and his family are from Armenia. They came to the San Ysidro port of entry in 2015, claimed asylum, were deemed to have credible fears of persecution, and were placed in removal proceedings to present their claims. The claim here is really Mr. Lalayan's, with his wife and children, as derivatives. Mr. Lalayan testified that he was beat and his family threatened with death after he reported members of the Yergrapa Volunteer Union, known as the Union in Armenia, for embezzling aid provided by the United Methodist Committee on Relief, or UMCOR intended for Armenians in need. UMCOR is an international organization, and Mr. Lalayan claimed that he worked for it in Armenia. He was also a member of the Union, which held veterans and disabled individuals in Armenia, and has a fair amount of political power. But on cross-examination, DHS poked a bunch of holes in Mr. Lalayan's story, and the IJ did not deem his explanations persuasive. Reading some of the responses, some of it might have to do with the fact that Mr. Lalayan started answering the IJ's questions with questions, pretty much the worst thing any witness can do, but which so many seem to want to do, and which I try to combat extensively during witness preparation. The IJ held two hearings, found Mr. Lalayan not credible, and denied him and his family's claim for asylum and related relief. The IJ based her decision largely on the implausibility of the family's story. The BIA upheld the IJ. And the Ninth Circuit affirmed, in what, like so many, is a very fact-specific adverse credibility analysis. The Real ID Act of 2004 expanded what IJs are permitted to do in making an adverse credibility finding, and indeed specifically targeted prior Ninth Circuit precedent on the issue. When Congress wants to act on immigration, it certainly knows how to do it. One of the things that the Real ID Act permitted IJs to consider was the plausibility of a non-citizen's story, and quote, 
Inherent plausibility in the context of adverse credibility determinations refers to the inherent believability of testimony in light of background evidence. End quote. Here, the Ninth Circuit held that an implausibility finding at base is tethered to an IJ's quote, common sense, end quote, and need not be based on a quote, express conflict between a witness's testimony and some other evidence in the record, end quote. And so holding, the panel seems to be somewhat disagreeing with parts of the court's 2005 decision in Jabril v. Gonzalez, which it says it can do because that decision predates the Real ID Act. Now true, an implausibility finding can't be made on, quote, speculation and conjecture, end quote, which occurs when the, quote, witness's testimony is uncontroverted by any evidence that the IJ can point to in the record, end quote or when based on an issue unasked during testimony. Understood. But reading this decision, and so long as the IJ provides the witness an opportunity to explain, doesn't cherry-pick the record, and doesn't base the finding on impermissible, quote, cultural differences, end quote, or assumptions, IJs are pretty much unlimited in the evidence they can point to to deem a witness's testimony implausible. Turning to the case at hand, the court found the standard met. The IJ discussed the reasons for her findings at length, including, for example, rejecting Mr. Lalayan's explanation for why he didn't notify UMCOR's international headquarters of the embezzlement, despite allegedly reporting it to UMCOR in Armenia. Also, the IJ properly deemed it implausible that after seven years at UMCOR as a warehouse officer, Mr. Lalayan only reviewed the distribution sheets where he discovered the embezzlement for the first time shortly before leaving his post. And finally, the IJ properly deemed it implausible that, as the testimony indicated, the whole family traveled from Armenia to Russia and then Russia to Mexico and only decided to leave Mexico for the U.S. during their two-day stay in Mexico. Finally, and although withholding of removal and cat protection are mandatory, even when an adverse credibility finding has been made, if the evidence supports it, the Ninth Circuit held that the country condition evidence in Armenia did not support a grant. And that is the Lion v. Garland. Sticking with credibility just a bit, we have Singh v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on July 12, 2021. This case is about stays of removal, credibility, and IJ bias. Mr. Singh claims he's a political dissident from Punjab, India, and a member of the Man Party, who was twice assaulted and beaten by members of the party in power, known as the BJP, with the involvement of police. He claimed that during the attack, the BJP members said that they would kill him next time. He went to the hospital following the beatings, and since fleeing to the U.S., BJP members have threatened and attacked Mr. Singh's parents in search of him. Mr. Singh was detained during his removal proceedings and was not released by ICE. During detained proceedings, the IJ, mentioned by name but I will not do so here, stated that, quote, Since October 2019, when a wave of respondents from India have arrived, there have been an emerging pattern and an eerie similarity between the statements presented by the respondents in either credible fear proceedings or in their asylum applications, end quote. The IJ then went on to describe those claims. 
Mr. Singh's counsel explained at length why such similarities may exist, but the IJ held that, quote, Respondent's counsel's explanation for the similarity is insufficient to rebut the repetitive narrative of applicants from India, end quote. And that, now quoting the Fifth Circuit, quote, Based on Singh's similar asylum claim and two inconsistencies between Singh's testimony and the evidence in the record, the IJ made an adverse credibility finding, which the BIA affirmed, end quote. As non-citizens can actually be removed after the BIA rules and even before the circuit issues a decision on petition for review, Mr. Singh, through counsel, filed an emergency stay of removal after losing at the BIA. The Fifth Circuit granted the emergency stay, which is very temporary, and now in this decision has granted a full stay of Mr. Singh's removal until such time as the Fifth Circuit has the opportunity to determine whether the IJ's substantive adverse credibility decision was correct. There aren't that many published stay decisions, so pay attention. When deciding to grant a stay in any case before the case is actually decided on petition for review, the Fifth Circuit considers, like all circuits really, 1. Whether the stay applicant has made a strong showing that he's likely to succeed on the merits. 2. Whether the applicant will be irreparably injured absent a stay. 3. Whether issuance of the stay will substantially injure the other parties interested in the proceedings. And 4. Where the public interest lies. Quote, the first two factors are the most critical, end quote. The Fifth Circuit found those factors met. First, it agreed that considering that the IJ in question, who has been on the bench for a long time and who has a, quote, near total denial rate for asylum applications, reflected a bias and violated Singh's due process rights, end quote. Big stuff. In fact, out of the IJ's 204 asylum decisions from 2014 to 2019, the IJ here denied 203. This made it such that the IJ's impartiality could reasonably be questioned. Big stuff. Not only that, but the Fifth Circuit held that the IJ failed to comply with the BIA's 2015 decision in matter of RKK, quote, applicable when an IJ relies on inter-proceeding similarities for an adverse credibility determination, end quote. Under that case, if an IJ is going to rely on information not related to the case in front of him or her, the IJ should, quote, give the applicant meaningful notice of the similarities that are considered to be significant, end quote, provide a reasonable opportunity to explain the similarities, and then consider all circumstances in totality all on the record. The IJ did not do so here because the IJ didn't provide Mr. Singh with copies of the statements and documents from the other asylum cases that the IJ was relying upon, or anything really. The IJ just kind of paraphrased similarities that the IJ had been seeing in other cases. As such, Mr. Singh didn't have a reasonable opportunity to contest those allegations. Quote, a general sketch of factual similarities on the record, as the IJ did here, fails to provide the meaningful notice that matter of RKK requires, end quote. And in any event, if the IJ is going to go this route, it's often going to require a continuance to allow counsel to prepare. This again, the IJ did not permit. As Mr. Singh is claiming to fear death, the Fifth Circuit also found the irreparable injury prong required for a stay of removal met. A bit more to it, but that's the gist. 
So even though this case is only about whether to grant a stay of removal, the analysis was granted on the first two prongs, the ones regarding whether Mr. Singh is likely to succeed on his petition for review. So Mr. Singh is probably going to win his substantive case. Quote, The incredibly high denial rate, when coupled with the IJ's noncompliance with matter of RKK, presents a substantial likelihood that Singh will be entitled to relief upon full consideration by a merits panel. End quote. The Fifth Circuit is having quite the two weeks. Congratulations, counsel and Mr. Singh. I'm blown away. Two more things. Check out this decision if, I believe based on a Google search, you've got a case arising in a detained facility in Louisiana. Powerful decision, particularly if this IJ was your IJ, as apparently the IJ was, 204 times between 2014 and 2019. And if you're going to make a due process bias case against an IJ, you better have your ducks in a row, both as a matter of fact, law, and professional credibility. But if you're going to go down that route, it's important to remember that an IJ's smirking, rolling of eyes, and disparaging comments against counsel or the non-citizen can demonstrate bias, but only when, and here's your standard, quote, they reveal an opinion that derives from an extrajudicial source, or if they reveal such a high degree of favoritism or antagonism as to make fair judgment impossible, end quote. And that is Singh v. Garland. Next up, Sanchez-Gonzalez v. Garland, published by the Sixth Circuit on July 16th, 2021. This case is about motions to reopen and reinstatement, issues similar but not the same as those discussed in the Third Circuit decision just a bit ago. Mr. Sanchez came to the U.S. from Honduras in 1994 and became a lawful permanent resident, but he was removed in 2008 due to an Ohio conviction he obtained in 1999. He entered the U.S. unlawfully twice more, and both times the final order was reinstated by DHS. But on his final unlawful re-entry in 2018, after reinstatement and while Mr. Sanchez remained in detention, his attorney realized that his 1999 conviction was invalid, because under Ohio Revised Code Section 2943.031a, the sentencing judge was obliged to advise that a guilty plea might result in the, quote, consequence of deportation, end quote. This the criminal judge did not do in 1999, and so on Mr. Sanchez's motion, the criminal court vacated the conviction. Mr. Sanchez replayed to an offense that did not make him removable, and so, in 2018, he filed a motion to reopen, arguing that the 2008 removal order, based on his 1999 conviction, could not stand, and he should get his green card back. But the BIA, where Mr. Sanchez filed the motion, because that was the last court to rule on the case, denied the motion to reopen, holding that INA Section 241A5 divested it of jurisdiction to even consider a motion to reopen because DHS had previously reinstated Mr. Sanchez's final order of removal, the very order that he was now challenging as essentially unconstitutional. The Sixth Circuit affirmed. For what it's worth, the court held that it had jurisdiction to review the legal question of whether the BIA was correct in its reading of INA Section 241A5. 
but then the Sixth Circuit held that the BIA did correctly read that statute as divesting it of jurisdiction. Although the statute and the regulations grant non-citizens the right to file motions to reopen, INA Section 241A5 holds that, quote, if a non-citizen has re-entered the United States illegally after having been removed, the prior order of removal is reinstated from its original date and is not subject to being reopened or reviewed, end quote. The Sixth Circuit held that the statute means that where a final order is reinstated following an illegal entry, no motion to reopen can be filed. The court realized that this is a harsh rule, but said that that was Congress's intent in IRIRA, quote, to take a harder line with illegal reentrants, end quote, and give them, quote, fewer legal rights, end quote. The Sixth Circuit rejected Mr. Sanchez's argument that such a rule would result in a, quote, gross miscarriage of justice, end quote. Or rather, the Sixth Circuit held that there exists no such exception to INA Section 241A5. While other circuits, like the Ninth and the Fifth, have held that a gross miscarriage of justice finding, if present, might prevent DHS from reinstating a final order of removal in the first place, and might permit circuit review of the underlying final order of removal, the Sixth Circuit has never so held. And in any event, the court was unaware of any case in any circuit extending that principle to permit a motion to reopen where proceedings have already been reinstated. Subtle but important difference to the Sixth Circuit. Also according to the Sixth Circuit, no gross miscarriage of justice occurred here because at the time of the removal order in 2008, the removal order was valid. To the extent an error was made, it wasn't the BIA's error, because at the time, it was relying on a state court conviction. But then the Sixth Circuit went even further, arguably in dicta, to create a circuit split with the Ninth and Fifth Circuits, and hold that the gross miscarriage of justice rule does not apply in the Sixth Circuit. Quote, We decline to read a gross miscarriage of justice exception into the statutory framework. End quote. Mr. Sanchez, therefore, did not succeed and did not get his green card back, despite the fact that he was never lawfully convicted of a removable offense. And that is Sanchez Gonzalez v. Garland. Next is Coto Albarenga v. Garland, published by the Eighth Circuit on July 12, 2021. Back to credibility because it's kind of credibility week. This is the first of a trio of Eighth Circuit decisions. Miss Coto Albarenga is from Honduras and came to the U.S. in 2014, actually entering at a port of entry rather than unlawfully, because at the time, the Obama administration was providing credible fear interviews at ports of entry as allowed under U.S. law, and permitting those deemed to have a fear of return to enter the U.S. for removal proceedings. By doing so, the Obama administration made it much less likely that individuals would get smuggled into the U.S. and risk their life with trafficking organizations or by trekking through the deserts that border Texas and Arizona. Ms. Cota Albarenga passed her credible fear interview and was allowed into the U.S. for removal proceedings. In proceedings, she claimed to fear her abusive boyfriend named Mackie. Remember, at the time, as of now, matter of ARCG was good law. 
but Ms. Cota Albarenga's testimony in removal proceedings didn't quite match her credible fear interview testimony at the border, and the IJ deemed her not credible, therefore denying her claim for asylum and related relief. The BIA affirmed, and the Eighth Circuit upheld the BIA under substantial evidence review. As the basis, the Eighth Circuit affirmed that the IJ did not err in relying upon inconsistencies regarding when Ms. Cota Albarenga's relationship with Mackey began, inconsistencies as to her living arrangement with him, omissions regarding abuse that Mackey committed against her as compared to the Credible Fear interview transcript, and Ms. Cota Albarenga's having waited until the final hearing to testify that, in fact, Mackey was in a gang. In addition, the IJ properly relied upon the fact that a letter from Ms. Cotola Barango's mother-in-law, who also apparently feared her son, was not sufficiently detailed, and that Ms. Cotola Barango was non-responsive during cross-examination. The Eighth Circuit recognized that many of these discrepancies may be the result of Ms. Cotola Barango's credible fear interview being conducted at the border, while she was pro se without an attorney, having just fled persecution, and without time to put together her case. But under substantial evidence review, the Eighth Circuit would not disturb the agency. And that is Coto Alberenga v. Garland. Sticking with the Eighth Circuit, we have Fofana v. Mayorkas, published on July 15, 2021. As longtime listeners know, I don't usually do the decisions that arise in district court but sometimes I do, when my interest is piqued. And admittingly, this case piqued my interest before the circuits published a bunch of decisions on Thursday and Friday. This case is about issue preclusion, also known as collateral estoppel, and terrorism. Mr. Fofana is from Liberia and applied for asylum in the U.S. In immigration court proceedings, he testified that he, quote, raised funds for the United Liberation Movement, a Liberian rebel group that opposed the governing party in Liberia, and cited that activity as one reason that he feared future persecution. An immigration judge granted the application for asylum, end quote. But when he applied to adjust status before USCIS under the Special Asylum Adjustment of Status Statute, INA Section 209, USCIS determined that the United Liberation Movement was a terrorist organization and that because Mr. Fofana had solicited funds, he's inadmissible, unless he could, quote, demonstrate by clear and convincing evidence that he did not know and should not reasonably have known that the organization was a terrorist organization, end quote. Mr. Fofana could not, and so USCIS denied his adjustment of status application. Mr. Fofana sued USCIS in federal court under the Administrative Procedures Act, arguing that USCIS was precluded from so finding because by granting him asylum, the IJ necessarily already addressed the issue, and held Mr. Fofana not barred under the Terrorism Support and Admissibility Provision. The district court agreed, and granted summary judgment for Mr. Fofana. But the government appealed, and here the Eighth Circuit reversed. It reversed because, for issue preclusion to apply, the issue must be, quote, actually litigated, end quote. In this case, and even though the IJ did indeed hold Mr. Fofana eligible for asylum, the Eighth Circuit held that, quote, an issue lurking in the record but not raised or decided is not actually litigated, end quote. 
here, whether the United Liberation Movement was a terrorist organization, or whether Mr. Fofana was inadmissible for soliciting funds for it, was never brought up before the IJ. And so the Eighth Circuit held it was never actually litigated. Very similar holding to that out of the Eleventh Circuit, discussed on episode 56 of the podcast in Islam v. DHS, and in which I accused Judge Jordan of tearing out my heart. So because the issue was not actually litigated, USCIS is not bound by the IJ's implicit ruling and may deny Mr. Fofana's adjustment of status application for that reason. Don't take anything for granted, guys. But here's an argument. In the decision, the Eighth Circuit distinguishes counsel's very smart argument relying on a case from 2009 in Irving v. Dormeyer, wherein the Eighth Circuit ruled against a federal prisoner in his 42 U.S.C. Section 1983 action by holding that issue preclusion could apply when a court implicitly rules on an issue, as occurred when the IJ held Mr. Fofana eligible for asylum notwithstanding the material support of terrorism bar. But the Eighth Circuit distinguished Irving by holding that in Irving, quote, the disputed issue was raised and submitted for determination in the first proceeding, end quote. Collateral estoppel does not apply when the issue, quote, was neither raised by the parties nor mentioned by the court in the first proceeding, end quote. Or put another way in layman's terms, if DHS had so much as mentioned the terrorism bar at a prior hearing in this case, but neither it nor the IJ brought it up later before granting asylum, Mr. Fofana would have a much stronger argument that collateral estoppel barred USCIS from subsequently asserting the terrorism issue when he applied to adjust status. And that is Fofana v. Mayorkas. Rounding out the Eighth Circuit, we have Pet v. Garland, published on July 16, 2021. Two more to go and they're both about the categorical approach and realistic probability test, so strap in. This one is in the context of crimes of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment. Mr. Peh is a native of Thailand, but a citizen of Myanmar. I suppose he was born in Thailand but doesn't have citizenship there, perhaps because of how Thailand treats those of Burmese descent? I don't know, the decision doesn't say. But I'm interested. Anyway, Mr. Pat became a lawful permanent resident in 2009, but in 2019, he pled guilty to enticing someone under 16 years old to do an illegal act, in violation of Iowa Code Section 710.10.3. The criminal complaint provided further details, charging Mr. Pat with, quote, the intent to commit sexual abuse or sexual exploitation upon a minor under the age of 13, end quote. Not good but Mr. Pat pled to enticing a person reasonably believed to be 16 years old with the intent to commit, quote, an illegal act, end quote, thereupon. DHS initiated removal proceedings, alleging that this made Mr. Pat removable under INA Section 237A2EI for having been convicted of a crime of child abuse, child neglect, or child abandonment. The IJ and the BIA agreed. We discussed a similar issue two weeks ago in the Fifth Circuit decision, Adiko v. Garland. 
The categorical approach applies to the inquiry, and the BIA has defined the term crime of child abuse, neglect, or abandonment in matter of Saram and matter of Velasquez Herrera. Under BIA precedent, that term generally includes most harms to children, including harm, quote, that impairs a child's physical or mental well-being, end quote, with child being defined as an individual under 18 years old. The question is, then, does Mr. Pez's Iowa conviction require that? The Eighth Circuit said it didn't quite know, and sent it back, opining on a lot of things along the way. The Iowa conviction requires that a prosecutor prove that Mr. Peck, quote, enticed a person reasonably believed to be under the age of 16, end quote, and that he had the intent to commit a, quote, illegal act, end quote, upon that child. In Iowa, quote, entice is defined as to draw on by arousing hope or desire, or to draw into evil ways. Synonymous words include allure, attract, and tempt. End quote. As to the phrase illegal act, the Eighth Circuit explained that under the statute's text and state case law, quote, the intended illegal act need not be the act that entices the minor, end quote. So based on case law, quote, enticement may be accomplished, for example, simply by asking a minor to help find a lost puppy, regardless of what the offender intends to do next, end quote. Kind of gross, but all right. More to the point, under the statutory text alone, the Eighth Circuit could not, quote, exclude the possibility that an offender could be prosecuted for enticing a minor with intent to commit disorderly conduct or harassment upon a minor, end quote. And that is not child abuse, as under Iowa law, it could even include enticing a child into a building and then playing really loud music at him. For example... All of this appears to indicate that the criminal statute is broader than the federal removal offense, and therefore that Mr. Pett is not removable. And indeed, the Eighth Circuit at first seemed to apply the realistic probability test in the manner similar to the Eleventh Circuit in Ramos v. Attorney General and pretty much every circuit except the Fifth by holding that everything I just explained above won the day for Mr. Pett. Because, quote, however unlikely these scenarios may be, they come within the plain meaning of the Iowa statute, end quote. That should be the end of the categorical approach analysis, unless the statute is divisible. But then the panel explained that there's actually an intra-circuit split on what the realistic probability test requires. The Eighth Circuit held very recently in Gonzalez v. Wilkinson, that Florida marijuana decision discussed on episode 46 of the podcast, that if a statute's text makes it overbroad, end of story. Like what I just said. But previously, the Eighth Circuit apparently held otherwise in Milana v. Lynch, holding that actually to defeat the categorical approach, even where the statute's text appears to make the criminal statute broader than the federal removable offense, quote, a non-citizen must demonstrate that the state actually prosecutes the relevant offense in cases involving non-generic conduct, end quote. And both of those Eighth Circuit decisions say that they're applying the Supreme Court's decisions in Duenas Alvarez and Moncrief. So there's a problem. Having explained the intra-circuit split on what the realistic probability test actually requires, the Eighth Circuit panel declined to say which decision it agrees with and kicked it back to the BIA for further application of the realistic probability test. 
Inferring, however, that under either approach, the statute is probably overbroad, likely letting Mr. Peh keep his green card. So in my opinion, things are looking decent for Mr. Peh, but very confusing for Eighth Circuit immigration practitioners. Until the Supreme Court speaks again. And that is Peh v. Garland. Finally, we come to Ocoa Salgado v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on July 16th, 2021. Drugs in the categorical approach, everyone. Mr. Ocoa Salgado is from Mexico, and obtained LPR status many years ago. But in 2008, he was convicted in Texas of manufacture or delivery of cocaine in violation of Texas Health and Safety Code Section 481.112. DHS initiated removal proceedings alleging that the conviction was an aggravated felony under INA Section 101A43B, a drug trafficking offense, that therefore made Mr. Ocoa Salgado removable. Here's the thing, though. In Vasquez Martinez v. Holder, published by the Fifth Circuit in 2009, the court said that this very criminal statute allows for conviction for mere delivery of a controlled substance, which includes a simple, quote, offer to sell, end quote and a mere offer to sell, according to that Fifth Circuit decision, doesn't match the definition of a drug trafficking offense under the Federal Sentence Enhancement Guidelines, which are often very similar to the removal provisions that we talk about on the podcast. So based on that case law, DHS amended the notice to appear to charge Mr. Ocoa Salgado as removable under INA Section 237A2BI instead, as an LPR convicted of an offense relating to a controlled substance, not as the aggravated felony controlled substance removability provision. Lots of ways to adversely impact non-citizens for drugs under immigration law. And by doing so, DHS no longer had the burden to prove that the crime is an aggravated felony. It just needed to show that the crime related to a controlled substance. Mr. Ocoa Salgado conceded removability and applied for LPR cancellation of removal under INA Section 240AA. The IJ and the BIA denied his application, finding, now that Mr. Ocoa Salgado had the burden because it was the relief stage, he could not show that his conviction wasn't for an aggravated felony drug trafficking offense, meaning that he was ineligible for cancellation of removal because aggravated felonies are statutory bars to the relief. But then came the Supreme Court's decision in Mathis v. U.S., which the panel reads as having changed up the categorical approach significantly in the Fifth Circuit. According to the panel, and at least in the Fifth, Mathis made it such that Texas Health and Safety Code Section 41.112 was no longer divisible as between delivery or other methods of committing the offense, meaning, according to Mr. Ocoa Salgado, The conviction could no longer be an aggravated felony because delivery did not match a trafficking offense, and he was now eligible for LPR cancellation of removal. The matter was remanded back to the BIA from the Fifth Circuit, where the BIA held that actually, the conviction is still an aggravated felony. And the Fifth Circuit affirmed, taking pains to distinguish its case law in the very similar sentence enhancement context from its immigration jurisprudence. Although both sentence enhancement and immigration require application of the categorical approach, the Fifth Circuit held that, unlike the sentence enhancement guidelines, the Controlled Substance Act, which defines drug trafficking aggravated felonies, 
does criminalize mere offers to sell. Plus, even in the sentence enhancement cases, the Fifth Circuit panels in those cases were apparently just relying on the U.S. government's concession that offers to sell don't meet the definition of a drug trafficking offense. This panel believes those concessions were error and non-binding upon subsequent Fifth Circuit panels. So reviewing the issue anew, does the definition used at Section 41.112 match the definition of a controlled substance trafficking aggravated felony? The Fifth Circuit says it does, because in Texas, the prosecutor must prove that such a defendant attempting to commit the crime engaged in the same culpability as someone completing the crime, and that they took the substantial step to do so. The crime requires, for example, that the defendant attempting to deliver the drug have the intent to sell the drug, and that the defendant take a substantial step to sell the drug. That satisfied this panel that the Texas crime sufficiently matches the definition of a drug trafficking aggravated felony under the CSA and immigration law. And so holding, the Fifth Circuit's rationale expressly conflicts with that employed in the Ninth Circuit, which has held that the mere solicitation of a controlled substance does not match the definition of a drug trafficking aggravated felony. So Mr. Alcoa Salgado is removable because his crime is one relating to a controlled substance, as he conceded, and he's ineligible for LPR cancellation of removal because the conviction is an aggravated felony. Because even after Mathis, this seemingly non-divisible statute, in all instances, matches the definition of an aggravated felony drug trafficking offense. A decision that's got my brain swimming at the end of a long day and long week. But I just can't stop. The panel clearly does not like how the categorical approach can sometimes result in windfalls for non-citizens with criminal convictions. In this decision, the Fifth Circuit panel disregards a state court decision that appears to flatly undermine the panel's analysis because it deems that state court decision, quote, an unpublished opinion that employed a demonstrably erroneous reasoning, end quote. I'm not sure that's how the realistic probability approach works, even in the Fifth Circuit, but I could be wrong. And that is Akoa Salgado B. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook 
at Immigration Review, and send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.